HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. You're listening to Fields, the podcast. I'm Wythe Marshall. And I'm Melissa Metric. On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working in the world of urban agriculture. For money, for fun, for art, for justice, to feed the hungry, to green the city, or to uncover its history. In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in cities, one technology used to grow, or one project that teaches us something about our relationship to farming in urban environments. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer in the city today. You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast, or even a foodie. We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements. Hey, welcome to Fields, the unfinished story of urban agriculture with Melissa. Hi, everyone. And I'm Wythe Marshall. And we are joined today with Mike Treglia. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for making time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be to be here. Uh, great. And you're joining us from the Nature Conservancy, that's right? That's right. So I'm with our uh, New York uh, Cities program at the Nature Conservancy. Uh, so the Nature Conservancy is historically is a, a large uh, conservation organization. Uh, we work globally uh, in over 70 different countries in all 50 states. And uh, our mission is to protect the lands and waters in which all life depends. And uh, so that includes people. And in about 2013, we developed our first dedicated cities program here in New York. And uh, I joined the team in about 2016 uh, as, at the time, our urban spatial planner, and uh, now I'm our lead scientist with the team. So I oversee our research and data analysis practice, uh, really thinking about open space and green space, uh, primarily in New York City. Uh, yeah. Awesome. So your, your background is you're a scientist and you study um, biology in cities. Is that correct? Is that fair to say? Yeah, so uh, I'm trained as a herpetologist uh, and landscape ecologist. So I, you know, my graduate work was all focused on reptiles and amphibians, and thinking about how they fit into the broader landscape and how, uh, you know, anthropogenic impacts of people or landscape changes from people are influencing different species. Uh, throughout my work, I was just thinking about how people are connected 
and was dealing with different kinds of uh, data sets, largely spatial data sets. So I do a lot of uh, analysis that involved things like using satellite imagery and uh, some data on kind of populations and things like that. So uh, yeah, I came to the city's program at the Nature Conservancy really with this uh, broad spatial data skill kit, skill set, and uh, you know was excited to apply it to things like understanding green roofs and other assets uh, and resources in the city. Got it. So from um, snakes and frogs to looking at what you you mentioned before we got rolling, um, the concept of the urban forest. So maybe that's something um, you can unpack for us at some point. Um, do you want to give a little plug? Like, what does the Nature Conservancy do? I'm not sure everyone's heard of them, but they do some awesome work. Yeah, that's a great question. We do a, a lot, uh, especially operating globally. We And so much of our work really is with partners in different ways. Uh, so, you know, historically, we were are really a large landscape conservation organization. So we'd work to get land, large tracts of land into protection, uh, either by buying it or uh and, and stewarding it to keep it in a uh, kind of good ecological state. Uh, also working with property owners to get land into easements and into good management in the long term. And also working with different kinds of land trusts and things along those lines uh, to support kind of this landscape scale conservation. Uh, and, uh, you know, as I said, our city's work is fairly new, uh, kind of when you think about the organization as a whole. Uh, and uh, our team in New York is really focused on a couple of priority areas, one of which is the urban forest, as you mentioned. And by the when I say the urban forest, I really mean uh, not just the trees and their canopy that exist in New York City, but also kind of the physical infrastructure, like the soil and kind of the spaces where they exist, uh, the uh, and then the kind of social infrastructure that includes like the policies, the people who are taking care of them, uh, you know, the people who are living with them and, uh, yeah, having all, all sorts of different interactions with them, right? Uh, so we really think about this as a holistic system. And there, of course, can definitely be tree canopy that extends over roofs and over green roofs, as well as green roofs that can include trees, depending on a lot of the parameters, uh, right? And trees are really interesting and exciting to think about. But uh, in that space, we uh, convene or a... Uh, a group, the Coalition Forest for All New York City, which is working to advance the New York City urban forest agenda, a set of about 12 actions that, you know, we hope will support the, set the urban forest in New York City up to be uh, supported well for the long term. That's awesome. Um, so I'd love to hear more about some of those actions and how that intersects with potentially urban agriculture. Um, but you, you mentioned the key word, which is why I'd reached out and asked if you wanted to, to join us on the show to round out season three. So we opened, uh, Melissa and I spoke with, um, Ben Flanner from Brooklyn Grange and Mike, I remember speaking with you and Dustin Partridge from the Audubon Society about the Green Roof Research Alliance or Re Green Roof Researchers Alliance, I think technically. So it's for the researchers. Um, but can you tell us a little about the Green Roof Researchers Alliance, um, your, your involvement with it? Uh, maybe how it came to be, and maybe how that sort of intersects with some of what you just mentioned and this idea of an urban forest and looking at this total sort of ecological picture in New York. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so uh, I guess it was about in 2016 when there were first real discussions about the Green Roof Researchers Alliance. That's when I first started at the Nature Conservancy. And, uh, you know, basically New York City Audubon, I think in partnership with some others, uh, basically pulled together uh, interested folks doing research uh, related to green roofs 
researchers, educators, and policymakers, uh, and kind of founded the Green Roof Researchers Alliance in 2017. Uh, so it includes about 60 different individuals from over from about 20 institutions. And really the idea is to centralize information and support coordination of research and uh, like activities, right? So, of course, in a space as dense as New York City, not just in terms of like the development that we have here, but just there's so many institutions, so much good research, so many, you know, academic institutions, uh, you know, it's really tough to, you know, not to be doing redundant work, for example. Uh, right, so having this Green Roof Researchers Alliance and you know New York City Audubon to help really to really spearhead that, right, and that's been you know with uh, funding from the New York City, from the New York Community Trust, uh, you know, has really allowed for some deeper collaboration and coordination to avoid you know doing multiple people doing the same work, uh, and I think a really good example of that effectiveness is. You know, the, one of the first efforts that I was developing in my role at the Nature Conservancy was trying to fill the gap of a data set on green roofs and where they are, right? So, uh, you know, as somebody who thinks about landscape ecology and in a program who thinks really about, like, the spatial distribution of resources, uh, like, you know, open space in various forms, uh, you know, we realized that can be really important for informing policy understanding where we are so we can figure out where is appropriate to try to get to, uh, which is a big, you know, messy question that I won't get into too much, right? But we need to have this baseline set of information. And so I had started doing some work internally, you know, just, you know, really with myself with some coworkers uh, to start to map where the greeners are in as automated a way as possible. And it was really, you know, through the initial meetings of the Greener Researchers Alliance, uh, that I interacted with, you know, Timon McPherson at the New School, uh, Eric Sanderson at the form, formerly at the Wildlife Conservation Society, now I believe at New York Botanical Garden, and uh, Greg Getman at Columbia University, who were working on similar, uh, you know, or sometimes the same question, and you know, with with their, themselves or their research groups. And so we were able to say, hey, we're doing similar work. Let's collaborate and not do redundant uh, redundant work. And, uh, you know, so at the Nature Conservancy, we were able to kind of take the lead, but, you know, having really productive and important conversations along the way with these collaborators and others from the Green Roof Researchers Alliance. Uh, so that kind of led to the development of the first uh, data set, you know, fairly comprehensive for New York City of green roofs uh, that we released in 2018. That represents the th state of green roofs as of about 2016, which is when the imagery that we used was, uh, was captured. Right. So there's a bit of a lag. So it's it, to give people a sense of what this is, like I encountered this data visualized as like a cool map. You could kind of scroll through and see like in Google Maps, different green roofs, um, which is not something that you can do on Google Maps. Like you wouldn't be able to know what a green roof is. And there's other data you could imagine pinning to that. Um, but as you're saying, there's some lag because that data is a little harder to get than some of the geospatial data that like when Google is looking down at the shapes of buildings, they can kind of draw a little, you know, automate drawing a little um, shape of the building. So you're looking at all kinds of data about ecology and living things and what's going on. So can you walk us through like what data, I guess, you actually have and what data your group and maybe you, you OK, caveat, you probably can't speak for everyone in the group or whatever. But generally, like what is the Green Roof Researchers Alliance kind of up to um, what data exists? What have you shared publicly? Where's that going? 
You know what I mean? Can you paint the picture of like what you're up to? Yeah. Uh, right. And I think I'll name that, uh, there've been, uh, you know, different levels of activity of the Green Roof Researchers Alliance. And, uh, in the last couple of years, it's really been through a, uh, a kind of centralized conference at one point in the year. And, uh, you know, we have had working groups, so I've overseen the kind of mapping work, working group. Uh, but there are working groups, you know, oriented towards uh, like more biological research and ecology, uh, towards education, uh, things along those lines, right? So, uh, you know, and and as as well as the benefits of green roofs, right? So, uh, one thing, you know, I, I'm realizing we're talking about green roofs a lot. Uh, you know, do we? I want to make sure we have a kind of common understanding of, of what we're talking about with this. Uh, right. So when I think about green roofs, uh, what I'm really thinking about is a roof where there is basically vegetation kind of incorporated into the, into the roof, right? So there's typically the roof itself and then a waterproof barrier, uh, that kind of protects the roof from, from water and then a drainage membrane, a drainage layer rather, that helps, you know, extra water that, you know, from rainfall, uh, be funneled appropriately. And then on top of that, there's some sort of growing media or, uh, soil with then plants, uh, planted in there. Right. So, uh, and right. And so a lot of questions come up, like what about potted plants and, you know, things like that. Right. So there's a lot of messiness and, you know, there are in our work, you know, judgment calls we've had to make. Uh, but of course, as I was describing what a green roof is and in, in the way that I think about it, you know, there's so many benefits and considerations, right? Like what kind of biodiversity is, are, are the green roofs supporting, uh, right? So there are definitely biodiversity researchers uh, in the Green Roof Researchers Alliance who've been doing incredible work, right? And beyond, right? I'm sure there are researchers that we haven't gotten in, uh, involved in the Green Roof Researchers Alliance, right? Uh, you know, Dustin Partridge uh, at New York City Audubon has led some really important work on, uh, you know, bird, uh, bird species and how they're using green roofs. Uh, right. He and others have been involved in looking at the invertebrates that you're finding on green roofs and as, as well as like bats that are flying over green roofs. Right. Uh, and eating the insects that are flying uh, as they're traveling in the air. Uh, you know, there's been some really great work around, uh, you know, how green roofs are used in education. Uh, right. So uh, there is. Uh, you know, a, a group that's been, that's worked on that. Uh, and, you know, in particular, uh, a woman, Vicky Sando, uh, who's a STEM teacher at PS41, uh, you know, she really helped spearhead, really spearheaded the effort to get a green roof installed on that school, uh, which was, that roof was installed in about 2012, I believe. And, uh, you know, the time she was a parent of, you know, two kids who were enrolled in the school, I believe. And, uh, you know, since transitioned to, to becoming a teacher there. Uh, but, you know, she's done a lot of work to understand and think about and help program, you know, the educational use of that space. And I think had really important productive conversations to move the needle about how these spaces are used and considered. Uh, right. Green roofs, depending on the background you're coming from can be thought about from 
through lots of lenses. Some people think about them as just habitat for biodiversity, right? New York City Department of Environmental Protection, which is charged with managing stormwater uh, in New York City, among other things, right? I think a lot of the think the interest in, in that agency is in how they can manage stormwater, right? So uh, that's what some of the incentives through the through that agency are geared towards. Uh, right. And then as an ecologist, you know, especially historically, the things that I would think about are what species are living there and, you know, what species can't be living there. Uh, so there's, that's probably a long answer to your short question of like the picture of, you know, what kinds of data and work are being collected. Uh, right. But it's, I think there's just so much, right. I've named a couple of specific things, uh, you know, but it's really, there's work being done in all of these different spaces, uh, you know, including on like how much stormwater are these greeners holding in big rainfalls and, uh, yeah, how much, you know, how are they affecting the local temperatures of, of the air and such? Right. So, so is it fair to say your group's advising a lot of, um, each other and then there's different publications or different, um, measure, you know, projects, uh, and maybe advising the city in the case of DEP with stormwater, um, but so there's sort of different projects emerging out of the alliance, but I do remember that cool map. So to just ask about that and the status of it, is there like a central, like if people went to the Green Roof Researchers Alliance website, you know, can you find some data that all of you have pooled to help people understand sort of the state of Green Roofs? Is that a good place to go for just like, okay, I want to like get as much info as possible in one, one location? That's exactly right. Uh, yeah. Uh, so the Green Roof uh, Researchers Alliance website is really intended to be like a clearinghouse of centralized, robust information about green roofs, uh, right? So the map is accessible there, like, uh, you know, an interactive map where you can browse around the city, you know, virtually and see where they are uh, as of 2016, of course. You know, also information about like what kinds of financing programs there are, uh, what considerations there are in designing and building green roofs, what kinds of biodiversity they can support, uh, right? And of course, there's some global research in a lot of these spaces, and what the implications are for things like green roofs will vary based on local context, you know, based on local climate and all sorts of things like the building stock. So, uh, yeah, that's exactly it, right? And I'd say the, you know, the Green Roof Researchers Alliance really supports, uh, uh, you know, the coordination. Like, so that you know, it is not like a legal entity to, you know, in in and of itself to work with government agencies. I'd say, uh, right? But it's members of the Green Roof Researchers Alliance that are kind of connected and can coordinate and, you know, be connected with, you know, policymakers who are uh, having questions and things along those lines. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So it's not like a super formal um, role, but it, it allows for a lot of transition of knowledge and and maybe some um, expert advice. Um, so have you worked with or studied um, some of the bigger green roofs that are run? For example, I'm thinking of Brooklyn Grange at the Javits, but also just the Javits large sedum roof, um, which is, I, if not, it's definitely the biggest in New York City, right? I mean, it's huge. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I haven't done... So most of my research is from behind a computer looking at, uh, you know, these re those, uh, green roofs kind of through the lens of uh, geographic information systems and imagery. Uh, 
you know, I don't do, I haven't done really any field work on greeners other than, you know, getting to visit them uh, a couple at least. Uh, but yeah, the Javits Center is an incredible green roof. Uh, you know, the large older portion of it, uh, I don't remember when it was installed, but it's uh, been in place for a few years, a number of years now. And uh, it covers about six and three quarters acres. Uh, I know there was an additional, like additional green roof added uh, to another part of the rooftop, which is really uh, kind of much more focused on urban ag, right? So most of the older portion of the green roof at the Javits Center uh, is a fairly shallow sedum-based roof. Uh, right, so sedum is a succulent plant. It really is robust and uh, kind of resilient to harsh conditions, uh, like you would have on a New York City rooftop of harsh sun, you know, uh, harsh winds, uh, often you know drought and lots of rainfall. Uh, and you know, so this newer portion uh, that was installed, you know, is a you know deeper deeper soils. I believe I haven't seen it yet in person myself. Uh, right, but more geared toward urban ag and food production. Uh, yeah, yeah. The sedum portion looks like it was um, built out in 2014. So yeah, that's that's been a while now um, that they've had that very large um, sort of field of green um, on the west side. Um, okay, cool. So yeah, maybe we can come back to like some of your favorite green roofs you visited uh, or are planning to visit over the next year. Um, I know Melissa and I have been lucky to visit a few, including, um, yeah, I've, I've been up to that, that roof, uh, and it's, it's very nice. The, the new Grange site on the Javits. Um, so maybe, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very curious, how did you become interested in green roofs? So how did you transition from, uh, straight up snakes to, you know, uh, uh, so all these concepts you've just mentioned and thinking about stormwater retention and heat management and pollinator reserves, um, places for birds to come and yeah, food production. Um, where, how did those kind of come to mind for you? Were they always there and, and, you know, snakes and frogs was just, um, like a day job of some kind, like what's, what's the linkage for you? Yeah. So, uh, I think, you know, like most herpetologists, uh, like snakes and snakes and frogs and lizards and, you know, everything thing in that vein, uh, definitely much more of a passion than, than a day job. Right. And it's something I still enjoy going out, you know, looking for different species and such. Uh, right. But it was really that the work on, you know, the more traditional biodiversity kind of, uh, research that took me into a space where I was thinking a lot about more explicitly about people on the landscape and how people in nature interacting, uh, in lots of different ways, right? It's, we can really think of any given place as a social ecological system or a social ecological technical system. Uh, and, you know, so I had done my PhD looking at an endangered toad in Southern California and how development was impacting it in different ways and like trying to identify like where might there be opportunities to expand its range and support it. And then I was doing a postdoc at the University of Tulsa, which was part of a program, uh, uh, part of the EPSCOR program, which is an NSF-funded program to, his, to help fund historically underfunded states and really support collaboration across uh, institutions. So I was getting to interact with folks, you know, not just from the University of Tulsa, but also from uh, Oklahoma State and University of Oklahoma or Oklahoma University. And... Uh, from there, uh, you know, I was thinking about, you know, there were a lot of, there's a lot of great work being done about 
uh, people's perceptions of you know climate change and how things what's going on in the landscape. Uh, right, and that kind of built on some of my PhD training, which was as part of an interdisciplinary program at uh, Texas A&M. Uh, but I was like seeing all these connections being made, you know, thing, seeing how these different kinds of data sets I was thinking about in a biodiversity through a biodiversity lens, you know, especially using satellite imagery and stuff, uh, could be incorporated, and you know, the same technologies and tools could be used to like think about a more holistic system. Uh, so I, and I wanted to see more direct application of some of the work I was doing, uh, right? So in academia, you know, I was, I was publishing some papers and I acknowledged that, you know, they weren't being read by a broad audience and a lot of work, uh, is often needed to get them translated into policy change. Uh, right. Sometimes like that's not always the case, but in my experience, that's what I was seeing. And, you know, so I was interested in, you know, opportunities at NGOs, the Nature Conservancy, being this large landscape conservation organization historically was top of mind and, you know, was, you know, intrigued by this opportunity to work, you know, primarily in New York City, uh, applying the skills and tools that I had from my kind of more academic career uh, to intersect with policy implications and ultimately helping create a more resilient uh, future for New York City and the people who live here. Uh, and, you know, so it was like really this interest and greeners are kind of inherently part of that, right? Like, uh, I think you can't think about New York City and not think about the buildings. And a lot of people don't think about what's on top of those buildings. But as somebody who thinks a lot about landscape ecology, like, you know, the bird's eye view of things is, you know, kind of part and parcel of how I tend to th tend to approach a uh, system, uh, right? And if you think about New York City, there's about 40,000 acres of just building footprints. Like, so that's about the same area as, you know, a borough on average, uh, right? So a fifth of the whole city is covered in buildings, right? So there's this huge amount of opportunity uh, and, you know, just this use of space that's different from what we see on the ground and what we think about in many cases on a day to day. Yeah, that's awesome. So you're thinking about um, where animals live in general. And then when you apply that lens to New York City, as you're saying, you know, you have to take into account the buildings. And we generally try to keep the animals, the, at least, yeah, the turtles, the frogs, the bats out of our apartments and our offices. So they might live on the roofs. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so you sort of found green roofs through that landscape ecology thinking lens. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I was actually wondering, um, Mike, in 
in you studying like the ecologies in these areas, I'm wondering when folks are putting green roofs or even depending on the purpose, like sedum is going to be a completely different ecology than if you're doing like an urban farm or something like that. Um, but I'm wondering if, if you are finding not like, not necessarily like new ecologies on roofs, but if you're starting to see new species on roofs that you don't necessarily, that you haven't really seen in the past, like as these green roofs are becoming more plentiful, if species are starting to move over there a little bit more or, or different species, um, does that, does that make sense? That does. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think it is really generally going to be very context dependent. Uh, right. And again, I haven't done field research myself on species on greenery. So, but, you know, there's been some, you know, great work done, you know, Dustin has led some of it, uh, looking at, you know, how things like proximity to a park influence use of green roofs by different birds. Right. And, uh, you know, it seems like there's a lot of nuance where, you know, maybe a small patch on a green of, of green roof isn't that enticing to a bird that has a, or to a species or to a lot of bird species that have, you know, a big park with all sorts of habitats next to it. Uh, right. And I'm curious to like, see how that type of reach research progresses uh, as, you know, green roofs become more broadly distributed. Right. What does a, a uh, few city blocks, you know, that were that are covered in green roofs look like, uh, right, with an eye towards biodiversity, right? So, of course, uh, you know, because like a sedum green roof that is shallow, you know, in in uh, substrate and such, you know, probably can't won't have as much just variety in like microhabitats for different invertebrates, right? And there's not the same kind of flowering plant diversity there. Uh, you know, it might be a, less attractive to a lot of different species of birds and bats and uh, other and other organisms, uh, right? But maybe as you're on a rooftop that is more designed intentionally for biodiversity with, you know, deeper soil uh, and native species and, you know, a variety of species, uh, you know, especially as you scale that up, it'd be really intriguing to see, you know, what the species assemblage of, of animals that you see there, right? And as you have, uh, you know, birds, for example, and, uh, you know, stopping and like they're potentially uh, bringing different microorganisms with them uh, as they land and such. So, yeah, it's, I think, what will it look like in 10, 15, 20 years is uh, really intriguing to think about for me. Yeah. And I guess also just this sense of, of when folks, cause I, I know a lot of folks who kind of manage, um, urban farms in general and what they thought in the, or what, you know, we all thought in the beginning of like, what would be on these urban roofs and what is on the urban roofs. It's like, Oh, in the beginning, yeah, we're not going to have a lot of weeds. Cause we have like, you know, fresh soil and all this other stuff. And then all of a sudden we have all the weeds. Or I remember once I was working on um, a private garden on the 36th floor and we had so many grasshoppers and I was like, where did all these grasshoppers come from? This is the 36th floor. And it's like, oh, because this is very biodiverse and we're bringing all these plants in and we're bringing all this soil in. And we would see tons of birds cause it was right by battery park. So we would see tons of birds kind of coming in and out, um, especially during migratory season. So it is interesting depending on 
what we, you know, what is planted there and, and what is brought there, the ecologies that kind of come with it or, you know, but I love that idea of like what the birds are bringing in, like all the different microorganisms and stuff. And that that's what I'm really curious about of like, what are the microorganisms in these different soils that are being used? And, and is it changing, um, you know, depending on how long all of, all of this, these environments um, are there? Yeah, no, I mean, there's uh, so much packed into that. And there has been some good work out of Columbia University on like uh, soil microbes, for example. And I can't remember exactly who was doing it, but I can look it up and uh, send you all after uh, some information on that. But, you know, I think that is an interesting dynamic that like the just species composition, especially when you look at that microbial level, does change through time, right? Like uh, kind of in any system, like in a garden, right? Like uh, the from bringing in new soil to five years on, like new microbes have uh, really established uh, from the from the site, right? Kind of like our own like microbiome, right? Like you can think about the microbiome of all sorts of uh, spaces, uh, you know. And I think one thing also to not forget about is just like the role of like all sorts. It's not just birds, you know, and animal dispersed seeds, right? But also like wind dispersed seeds, and uh, you know, from our office at the Nature Conservancy in New York City, uh, which is over in Chelsea. I can see a couple of green roofs, and they're both sedum green roofs. But like you can see all the weeds that you know maybe have sprouted up, and it's like, uh, yeah, fun to just peer out and see and think about like what is this ecological dynamic and. Uh, it's really interesting to hear about like all the different kinds of grasshoppers that you're seeing because, you know, as a herpetologist, I think about like, okay, salamanders are, you know, greeners really aren't going to help them. And in general, they, uh, you know, unless salamanders are placed there and moved between green roofs to help, you know, support gene flow and stuff like, you know, green roofs really aren't helping, but doing much for salamanders, uh, aside from like helping cool temperatures and things along those lines more broadly. But it's like, uh, yeah, the ways these different organisms are getting around and transported uh, beyond by people, right, is really just fascinating and creates a complex, messy system. Yeah, um, this is going off topic a little bit, but I've been noticing a lot more um, lizards around for some reason, and I'm wondering if they would find themselves on green roofs. I'm sure all of my friends who run manage green roofs are like, no, 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 please, no lizards, but but just... Um, yeah, I saw some in like February in my neighborhood and there was like 10 of them just like spread out. And I was like, what is this? But anyways, I don't know. Sorry. Just, <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. Uh, and, uh, so the main lizards that people are seeing in New York city these days are a species called the Italian wall lizard, right? So it's a non-native species, uh, and, uh, you know, they've, I don't actually remember the story of how they were introduced to New York City, right? But there are some populations on Staten Island in Queens. And, you know, especially as our winters are getting warmer, you know, they're able to persist more easily. All right, and there are some, like, there's a... We're in a climate where native species could exist and maybe historically have uh, in the city, right? But... Uh, yeah, uh, right. So we have this species of, of lizard from uh, from Europe that, you know, has become established in a lot of parts of New York City. And I think they are good climbers in like a small scale, right? Like in, in a forest, you know, up on fences and such. 
but probably not. They're not climbing up onto the tops of buildings. Uh, but, you know, you can think of all the nature videos that folks have seen. Yeah, not yet. <laughs> Sorry. Because <laughs> I grew up partially in Florida and I would, like just remember the lizards climbing on the walls, but these are different lizards, so whatever. <laughs> but yeah. But yeah, I mean, you can imagine like a predatory bird, you know, finds one and like the lizard escapes. It's from the talons, you know, over a green roof, right? So. Well, I was going to say something very unscientific and dumb, but I was what you were speaking about a moment ago. Uh, although the Italian wall lizards thing really reinforces it, made me picture a bunch of miniature, like, um, I was going to say hamster size, but that's silly because we're talking about salamanders. So salamander size fireman ladders and kind of uh, water park tubes um, between buildings and between <laughs> roofs on buildings so that these critters have, and I guess you could run water down all of them a little bit. So, you know, the mammals might cool off and the the obligate um, water boys, you know, they they, they remain moist. Uh, but yeah, maybe that's something for um, to pitch uh, city council uh, at a, a later date. Um, for now, I am wondering sort of to turn to, you know, the social side. Um, I mean, Mike, can you say anything about what has led uh, to positive outcomes with green rooms? Is there anything policy wise you'd like to shout out? Um, I, I don't you know, you might have to speak carefully in terms of on behalf of the Nature Conservancy. So we understand that. But, you know, what do you see as positive outcomes or, you know, obstacles standing in the way of greening more roofs? Um, maybe common misconceptions, you know, anything about the sort of applied side? What what is going to lead to a better outcome for more of these these little critters? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Uh, so, you know, the there are Definitely a lot of challenges in getting green roofs installed, right? They're expensive and, you know, it requires like some engineering assessments, of course, to do it and be safe and make sure you're uh, within spec for your local, for your situation. And, you know, there, the fact that there are some policy programs, some policies and programs that can support green roofs, uh, you know, as well as other more sustainable infrastructure, rooftop infrastructure is really powerful, right? Uh, so there are you know local laws in New York City that require you know in general new construction and you know substantial renovations to have uh, you know green and or solar and I believe and or wind on their roofs right I because of you know lack of continuous green roof data it's tough to and you know as well as the fact that the pandemic you know started up uh, right not long after that legislation was passed. Uh, there, you know, it's tough to understand like how impactful those have been, uh, right? There's also uh, a green roof uh, grant program from the New York City Department of Environmental Protection, right? And that is again, you know, fairly targeted historically at uh, stormwater management. And I haven't kept to, up to date too well on like the latest any latest changes or developments on that. And there are definitely like some administrative challenges to it, right? Because it's, you know, because the city wants to ensure that that investment will, you know, last for a long time, uh, right? But I know that's been used especially somewhat by more like bigger institutions uh, that are going to be, that have, uh, yeah, that are going to be around for a long time and can, can make uh, long, long-term commitments. Uh, and then there you know, is, has, has been a green roof tax abatement. Uh, and so there's an older version of it and, uh, research, uh, by Danielle uh, Spiegelfeld 
from NYU found that it wasn't really being used that much. Uh, it was a fairly small abatement amount. So, you know, these abatements in, have been structured in a way where, you know, it's a dollar amount per square foot that's installed that you uh, get the tax abatement for, right? So it was, you know, I think only about $5.23 originally. Uh, there was a more recent version of the tax abatement that had been passed and uh, actually designated some priority areas for where greeners could, you know, could be seen as most needed, uh, right, for either heat amelioration, right, so we were dealing with the urban heat island effect, uh, and that really, the urban heat and you know, heat stress is a killer of people, uh, and, uh, you know, then there's stormwater management challenges, right, so based on suites of, a suite of variables uh, along those lines, you know, there were priority community districts designated, uh, and that had a higher tax abatement amount for these priority community districts. So I think that's like a step in the right direction. Uh, that uh, tax abatement has, you know, since lapsed, but hopefully will be uh, re-upped and, you know, there's always room for improvement and things like that. Uh, you know, and I think the fact that there are, you know, there is this kind of critical mass of researchers and folks interested in education and policy to, you know, convene of researchers alliance and have a conference right at the Javits center. And, you know, I think just that kind of community and like, it's only a small portion of the community, right? There's, I'm sure a lot of folks interested in this space that we aren't engaging, uh, you know, it really speaks well to, I think the opportunity, uh, for the, the future of this resource, you know, I think New York is still probably in the early adoption phase of green roofs. And I'll be really curious to see how much, more, how many more green roofs we've seen since, you know, with, with their data set update, uh, you know, but, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting things that are, you know, in place and can be improved and, you know, the right energy working towards it. Uh, the one thing I'll note, you know, as we talk about, uh, potential to expand green roofs and, you know, we found that most of the green roofs as of 2016 were installed, uh, in Midtown and downtown Manhattan and, you know, the downtown Brooklyn, right? And a lot of the areas that were more heat vulnerable, for example, have few to no green roofs, right? Even in areas with like flat roofed buildings that are generally more suitable for green roofs than, you know, a you know, peaked roof house or something, uh, right? And green roofs, you know, in many cases can be an amenity uh, that, you know, can, can be part of, you know, cost for an apartment, Right. So I think it's really important to keep housing equity as part of conversations like this. Right. Like, yes, we need to increase the distribution of these kinds of resources and make sure that, like, you know, they are, you know, serving people who will benefit from them uh, and, you know, are suffering from from environmental challenges. Right. Like environmental justice communities and such. And it has to be, you know, it's really critical that these conversations include those local voices uh, to think about what are the unintended consequences, you know, is this really what, you know, community needs and wants and, uh, yeah, things along those lines. Yeah. And I think that's where, um, the larger scale shifts, um, like you mentioned, you know, climate disruption, um, maybe provide some energy to all kinds of sort of medium scale, you know, political movements. So, um, suddenly because heat exhaustion is just going to be so much more prevalent year over year every single year. And it's, it's, it's going to be a crisis on the scale of, you know, your, your COVIDs and whatnot, 
potentially, realistically, you might have more people saying, you know, well, hey, we have all these great tools. Why don't we do more of them, do them smarter? So even if it's just tax abatements and giving abatements in different communities, you know, kind of at different rates, I mean, taking into account, you know, social justice when you're planning policy, um, you know, maybe that voice is, is louder and easier to hear in a, in a time when, you know, a third of the world is just on fire literally at any any given moment. So, um, you know, that brings me to the sort of the downer question, you know, how, how is climate change, uh, climate disruption affecting green roof research, conservation biology as a whole? Is that providing a spur? You know, are your organizations getting more um, press and more, you know, power to do important research? Um, uh, is, is that something you think about a lot or is it sort of so big that it doesn't really factor into your day-to-day, you know, work as a scientist? Yeah, I mean, I think so at the Nature Conservancy, the challenges faced by, you know, us all as in society, right, and biodiversity by uh, because of climate change, you know, really puts climate change front and center, right? Uh, so, and, you know, it's really impossible to think about the work I do without thinking about climate change, especially, you know, last summer was intense in terms of like drought and heat. Now, you know, we look globally and like, Every day we're hearing new numbers about, you know, how many days above, you know, 100 or 115 in Phoenix, for example, uh, right? And we're also just seeing these really intense rainfalls uh, in New York City, right? Like, uh, so we're having a lot more variability in uh, just our weather, right? And some of that is understood to be driven by climate change. And, uh, you know, as we think about how we as like a society, you know, uh, how, how New York City, think about the people, the in, you know, the ecosystems, the, yeah, different aspects of it uh, can be resilient under climate change conditions. Uh, you know, I think it's definitely something that's front and center in my mind. Uh, you know, as of the most recent kind of heat vulnerability report from the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, you know, generally about on average, I think about 370 people die per year uh, due to uh, heat related illness. Right. So that can be either heat exhaustion per se, or they have people have other elements that are exacerbated by extreme temperatures. Uh, so I think that, it is definitely, you know, pushing the conversation more and more. Like, how do we think about, you know, keeping the environment cool, managing stormwater challenges under under climate change conditions? Uh, you know, it's just, you know, the fact that we do have a mayor's office of climate and environmental justice, right? Like, is really important. And, uh yeah, I think it's important to just think about it holistically as one big system, right? Or, you know, with lots of different component parts, right? So there's green roofs and the urban forest, right? Which are not, which are very related and, and uh, adjacent to one another. And sometimes, sometimes in, in cases the same, right? Uh, when we have, but it is, uh, yeah, I think thinking about how these environmental, you know, what I would currently call amenity, amenities, they, they shouldn't be. They should just be, you know, more accessible to everybody that their benefits, uh, you know, are distributed with regard to the people who can benefit from them and uh, the environmental challenges that are in the landscape, you know, uh, 
combined sewer overflow outflows and such, uh, right? Lack of green space and the extreme, you know, heat that's associated with that, you know, it just make, means that we, you know, need to think holistically about solutions and also customizing them and uh, working with communities to make sure they're context dependent, how they're implemented. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, thank you for, for this very broad ranging interview. All right. Uh, cue invisible lightning round music we don't have. Um, Mike Treglia, do you garden? I do. Uh, what are you growing? We've got tomatoes, uh, zucchini, uh, cucumbers, eggplant, okra. Uh, what else? Most of the tomatoes are definitely going to my son these days. He gets home from daycare and just like runs over the tomato shrubs and picks them all, even when they're not ripe at all yet. Ah. I love tomatoes. Uh, man after my own heart. Um, what's your favorite vegetable? If you had to pick one. Oh, that's toughy. I enjoy eating like a good tomato, either like an heirloom or like uh, there's a variety called an early girl uh, that I enjoy. And I enjoy tomatoes as a hand fruit, which I feel like is controversial sometimes, like picking it and like eating it like an apple. Uh, it can definitely be messy, but yeah, that's something I'm all on board with. Yeah, same. I grew up with with that practice as well. Wow, um, I, f- I find that brave. I don't know why. <laughs> it might be a southern thing, Mike. It sounds like you you went to school in Texas. Are you from the South? Not so. I'm from Staten Island originally, oh. uh, which is you know south in New York City. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm from Staten uh, Island too. That's crazy. Oh, for real? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Cool. Yeah, we have to. I'm sure we have some common connections and such. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, no, I spent about seven years in Texas at Texas A&M. Uh, so, and then Oklahoma got it. So you, you've seen a lot of, you've seen different urban environments and, and rural environments. Got it. Um, favorite herpetological species. Oh, tough question. There's so many, I have never seen these in the wild, but think that Eastern diamondback rattlesnakes are absolutely beautiful. Uh, and just, yeah, really neat and impressive. They get really large. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Very beautiful. Not something you want to find on your roof when you're (laughs) installing sedum. I once saw, it might've been from a rattlesnake, but like, uh, what is it? Like the skin of it. And it was like six feet long upstate and, and it was freshly shed. And I was like, Oh no. (laughs) Upstate in New York. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Timber rattlesnakes are, uh, fairly prevalent in some parts, like, uh, uh, you know, up in like around Harriman state park and such, uh, there are all these like big rocky outcrops where they'll hang out and bask, especially on the kind of Southern facing slopes, which will heat up a little bit more as we get to the colder months. So that's great. We grew up with, um, everyone in Atlanta constantly talking about copperheads and how dangerous they were. But every single snake I ever saw was those little green grass snakes that can't possibly harm a human. Um, but then one time years later, my oldest brother who continued to live in Atlanta did have to, uh, drive to his, um, partner's place of work and, uh, chop up a, a copperhead with a machete because they were all like locked in an office being menaced, you know, in a suburban, uh, oh my goodness. office setting by the snake. I know You're it's, a snake it's like, handler. Uh, don't chop up. Come on. No, just I, you know, I was not there. I was not there. Um, all right. Final, uh, final lightning round question. Best, uh, best or favorite Interpret it how you want. Uh, style of pizza. What do you order? Oh, gosh. Uh, 
I mean, every place is so different, but as a Staten Islander, like there's a couple spots that, you know, I like a lot. So like, uh, but thin crust, like New York style, uh, you know, depending on the place, you might need to eat it there. Wait, I have a, I have a question. What's your favorite uh, place to eat pizza on Staten Island? So my two places are uh, Joe and Pat's. Yay! And Yay! Sorry. <laughs> yeah, and so like Joe and Pat's, like I think the crust holds up pretty well to transport. Like it stays surprisingly crispy, uh, you know, as takeout or delivery. Uh, Danino's is my is my other favorite, and you know I th- always think like that has to be savored there. Danino's also has awesome fried calamari. Uh, which Joan Pat's probably does too, but I haven't tried it there. And now there's a Joan Pat's on first Avenue. It's crazy. Really? Right. Okay. There's a Danino's in Manhattan too. And also Ralph's Ices. Sorry. Just, just gotta, gotta do all the set. There you go. Staten Island culinary culture finally made it a few kilometers North. Um, This is great. Uh, Mike, I think you've won fields. You've won the lightning round. Uh, Someone had to do it. Uh, by naming a thing Melissa really liked. And uh, yeah, we'll have to do a fields day and I'll meet up and go to a green roof and eat Joe and Pat's. Um, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything you wanted to plug, anything you want to mention upcoming that we should be aware of at the Nature Conservancy or the Green Re- Researchers Alliance or elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, in terms of green roofs, you know, stay tuned to play early in 2024. We'll have an updated data set and work with Dustin and others in the Green Roof Researchers Alliance to uh, share that out. Uh, and I think I mentioned the, uh, coalition that we work to convene at the Nature Conservancy in New York, our city's team, uh, Forest for All NYC. Uh, so, uh, it's got, we have over a hundred member organizations. Uh, so if you're curious, uh, and have an organization that thinks about urban forestry, even tangentially in New York city, you know, I'd say, uh, check us out. It's at, uh, forestforall.nyc. Uh, I'm just making sure that I said that right. Cause I, it's usually just in like autocomplete. Uh, but yeah, uh, I think, yep. Forest for all that NYC. Great. And we'll, we'll put a link in the, in the show notes as well. Yeah. So I think those are some of the things in mind and, uh, yeah, it. some other, I will just need give one other food plug for Staten Island, which is there's some incredible Sri Lankan food in Staten Island. So it's not just about great pizza and Italian food, yes! but also... I just went to an amazing Sri Lankan place. I was there on, on a Friday at an Italian festival, and there was also a um, Elvis impersonator. So yeah, it's just, just all the things on Staten Island. And before that, we got Sri Lankan food. So yes, by the ferry, lots of good Sri Lankan places. Just putting that out there. Good. Thanks, Mike. All right. Well, season four, we'll do a fields day and we'll eat Sri Lankan food and visit some green sites in the island. Um, until then, Mike Tragley, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and please send us anything you want us to link to. Uh, everyone, thanks for listening. I think this is probably going to be the last uh, interview for season three of Fields. So it's really great. Melissa, I realized just today this is 45 episodes we've done. Yay! Uh, so, yeah, uh, thanks everyone who's listened this far. And uh, hopefully this has been, you know, educational and somewhat entertaining. Mike, thanks so much for, for coming on. It was a pleasure um, speaking with you. And yeah, excited to um, look up all the things that you mentioned, especially about green roofs and all the research that you're doing. So thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here and it's entertaining for me as well. So, uh, yeah, look forward to keeping in touch. And thanks for ha- thanks again for having me.
yeah, please recommend anyone from um, you know the Earth Institute or um, elsewhere, the Soil Soil Science Institute um, that that you think we should speak with. And uh, please come back uh, maybe with Dustin in you know 2024 to tell us what GRA has uh, you know published um, uh, more recently. So uh, yeah, with that, thank you very much. Fields is powered by Riverside. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.